Good morning. Had to get the sandals out of the closet again, which is fun, a good problem to have. Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright, and I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning. So today we come to the part of the Apostles' Creed where it says that Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. We've been working our way through the basics of Christian faith as summarized in the Creed for seven weeks now. And we've seen that the Creed sums up the core beliefs that are found in Scripture. So let's review what we've covered so far. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And that concludes the opening two sections of the creed addressed to God the Father and then the longer section that really covers the story of Jesus. So whether we like it or not, this final section of what we just saw in the creed that we're looking at today, the final judgment of Jesus Christ is highlighted by the creed. And clearly, in our culture, we do not like it. I think we can say that, right? Last week during coffee hour after the service, someone showed me an app on their phone that lets them design their living space. It measures everything and lets you play around with where your stuff could go, where you could put it, without actually having to pick up and move your desk or your TV or your refrigerator. You can transport it into a different room and see how the layout would, would work. So I found that fascinating, and I imagined how useful that could be for someone who was into interior design, which I'm actually not at all. But then as I reflected more on that, I, I thought it was a useful analogy for the creed, because the creed is the opposite of that. You cannot move the pieces around based on how you might like things to look in this season, how you might want to change things up for a fresh new look. The creed is fixed. It's meant to be permanent, like the Bible on which it's based. And in our culture, I think we're constantly encouraged to change things up, to reinvent ourselves whenever we feel like it, even sometimes to celebrate the chaos and confusion of our world. But that is not God's truth. The Bible says you need a foundation. We all need that in order to flourish. If it was up to us in the Western church, I think we'd have quickly erased this section of the creed long ago. But the creed does highlight the final judgment. It's what is to come. It's the horizon. And it's critical that we understand and worship Jesus as our judge, as well as our Lord and Savior. So let's pray before we turn to Scripture. Holy Spirit, would you help us this morning to understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, even in his judgment, and to open ourselves up to the light that judgment brings. 
Amen. So we're going to read from John chapter 12, starting at verse 37. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Yet, at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than praise from God. Then Jesus cried out, Whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come into the world to judge, but to save. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So when did you last experience judgment yourself, personally, up close? A friend of mine who was a teacher told me a story this week about a child in her school who had destroyed another child's property. My friend had to decide how to call the child on what he had done. Effectively, it was a moment of judgment for this kid. My friend did not get angry, she's not that kind of teacher, but she put on her serious face, and that is a fearsome sight. And she told the child that what he had done was really unkind. He was a grade six kid, so not really a young child, but as he walked away, she could tell he was crying. Something about telling the truth and naming what he'd done as wrong Naming it as unkindness had really affected this kid. And in that moment, my friend played the role of judge. And she did so wanting the best for this student. All of us need that kind of authority in our lives. We need it ultimately for the health of our souls. As we learn about God as our judge this morning we will look at three aspects of the judgment of Jesus as laid out in John chapter 12. First of all, judgment is necessary. Secondly, judgment is unbearable. And third, judgment has been rendered. So let's start by acknowledging that judgment is not exactly the best selling point for Christianity today, right? If if you want to grow a church, leave out the parts about judgment. That's what the marketing department will tell you every time. Talk about health, wealth, and prosperity, and tell a lot of jokes. That's critical. Offer people their best life now, even yesterday, and the crowd will smile, they will applaud. 
So judgment may not be popular, but Scripture makes it crystal clear that it's necessary. We need a judgment day. But it's not how people might imagine judgment. We don't have to tremble in fear at the prospect of the final judgment. No, the truth is that judgment is part of the good news that Jesus came to share with us. It's, it's a key part of the gospel. Notice in what we read that Jesus is clear. In verse 48, he says, There is a judge, and there will be a last day. But first, before that, Jesus introduces the topic of judgment in verse 46 by saying that he has come into the world to be a light. We like the sound of that, right? We have lots of worship songs about God being a light to our path, God's light shining into our lives. Justin and I were talking about how we have very few songs about God's judgment. But Jesus is telling us here that without judgment, we remain in darkness. And that's a spiritual dilemma we face in our wider culture as well. We don't believe in an ultimate judge, and we've given up on foundational, essential truth for the most part. Now, at first, that might seem liberating. If there's no judge, well, then we can do whatever we want, right? But instead, what it actually does is it breeds cynicism. We still tell each other what's right and what's wrong. We still tell each other what to do. But if we don't believe in a God who judges truthfully, then we face a kind of emptiness. And in the end, none of our finger-pointing, none of the ways we blame each other and moralize at each other means anything. Another way that judgment is necessary is it's required for us to live at peace with each other. We sometimes hear that if people believe in a God of judgment, then they will be more prone to judge and to violence even themselves. But actually, I think the opposite is true. Miroslav Volf, a Croatian theologian who teaches at Yale University, says that a belief in God's judgment is necessary to avoid violence. In his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he writes, the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. This truth will be unpopular with many in the West, but imagine speaking to people, as I have in the former Yugoslavia, and he's Croatian, right? So he speaks from personal experience. Imagine speaking to people whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. You tell them they should not retaliate? Why not? Why wouldn't they? The only way to end violence is to insist that judgment should come from God alone. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God exists to extend grace and will not take up the sword. You need the superficial quiet of a suburb to nurture the false idea that a God who does not judge leads to peace. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, this idea will invariably die, like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. 
If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. How powerful those words are. What struck me especially was you need the superficial quiet of a suburb to nurture the false idea that a God who does not judge leads to peace. Have we come to accept that? Miroslav Volf is saying here that God being truly a good and holy God cannot just let injustice and violence go. He will not overlook them. There will be a reckoning. He will put these things and the whole world right. And you know what he's talking about here if you're someone who's really been wronged. If you've had a deep and terrible injustice done to you. To those who have suffered that way, Jesus says, there is a judge and it is not you. If you don't believe in God's justice and judgment, you can either seek revenge yourself and that leads to hatred every time, or you can try to learn to live with the way someone has harmed you, to accept it. And that can easily lead to despair. Either way, without God, without the doctrine of a final judgment, it's on you. It's up to you to figure out and work out. But the Christian faith does something different. It offers you freedom from that dilemma by saying there is a judge whom no one will escape. And again, it's not you. You can give all your hurt and all your anger to God. And really, if you don't, they will destroy you. But God's judgment can free you from resentment and bitterness and actually open the way for you to forgive those who have wronged you. There is a judge, and it's God, not you. My second point this morning is that judgment is unbearable. We've seen that judgment is necessary, but... The next thing for us to realize is that we cannot stand God's judgment. We cannot bear it. Why not? Isn't God a God of forgiveness? Well, because Jesus looks right into our hearts. That's what he does. It's no accident the Pharisees show up in this passage. In verse 37, we read that even after Jesus had performed so many miraculous signs in their presence, the people still wouldn't believe in him. And then later in verse 42, it said that even those who did believe wouldn't actually follow Jesus because they cared most what other people thought of them. They loved human praise more than God's praise. So the Pharisees were the ones who kept the law best. They were the highly regarded religious leaders of their day, and they behaved really well. They were good, sparkling on the outside. Kind of like us, right? We go to church. We look good on the outside. You brushed your hair, shined your shoes this morning on your way here, perhaps. Do you know how Martin Luther defined sin? Next Sunday is Reformation Sunday, so this can help to get you in the mood. <laughs> Luther said sin is humanity curved in on itself. At its essence, sin is not doing bad things or neglecting to do good things. No, it's the direction of our hearts that matters most to God. 
Sin is self-centered, self-righteous, self-preoccupation. So what are your motives for what you do every day? If what you do is done out of duty or out of a sense of superiority or to earn favor even, that's not the heart that God wants. In Matthew 25, on the last day, God separates the sheep from the goats based on whether we cared for the poor or not. But the reason God looks at our works, including whether we've showed any concern for those who are poor, is to see what's in our hearts. It's not about how many good deeds you've piled up. If your heart is self-centered, self-serving, self-righteous, instead of open to God, humble, most of all, humble, depending on him for grace and mercy, there will be a difference in how you live. In John 12, we see another way that God judges. I'm not sure if you noticed this, but in verse 48, there is a judge. But then in verse 47, before that, Jesus had said that, I will not judge you. My word will judge you. At first, it seems like a contradiction. But when Jesus says that he did not come to judge, what he means is that judgment is not his primary purpose. He is coming to save above all. Elsewhere in John, he repeats that he is our judge. For example, in John 5, he says, The Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So what he's doing here in John 12 is telling us how his judgment works, how it plays out. The word you've heard is what you'll be judged on. In Romans 12, Paul says that you will be judged by the truth you know. Whatever truth you know, you can think of it this way, whatever truth you know will rise up on the last day and say, you knew me, but you didn't do me. So God judges our motives, our hearts, and he judges based on what we know. So if you're a parent, you can think of what you might expect from your 12-year-old child compared to what you expect from your 6-year-old. Of course, you're going to hold the older child to a higher standard because they know their parents' will. They've heard your words more often. They're more familiar with your ways and your wishes. They should know better. Or let me illustrate it another way. We have a couple of Google Home devices in my family, and normally you have to say, OK, Google, to make the voice respond, to get the update in the Leafs game or the news you desperately desire. But once in a while, we accidentally say something that triggers the Google voice, and it's this creepy reminder that we are not alone. <laughs> Google is always listening. Now imagine if there was some kind of device in your life that you could never turn off, that you could never get away from. And imagine that any time you told someone else, even just in your head, every time you told them what they should do, or every time you got annoyed because they weren't doing what you thought they should be doing, every time this device would record that judgment. And then imagine that on the final day of judgment, God would then play back to you all those criticisms, all those complaints, and judge you, not on his much higher standards, but on the basis of what you required of other people. Would that alarm you? Man, that terrifies me. Are there any other die-hard hypocrites in the room? 
I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. It's no wonder people have come up with ingenious ways of avoiding or denying judgment. On the one hand, the liberal relativist says there is no God and there is no judgment day, but, but then that's a huge problem because then there's no justice for those who need it most. In a way, there's no hope. On the other hand, the moral and religious conservative says, do your best. That's the answer. Be a good person and God will accept you. But that is a problem too, because God sees and hears everything, even more than Google. And he knows us far better than even the closest people in our lives. He knows that we are not good enough. He knows what hypocrites we are. And so both of these approaches fail. But Jesus offers us a way forward. And this is my third point. The Bible teaches that judgment has been rendered. In Christ, we have experienced ultimate judgment. And so it is finished. It is done. Did you notice something strange in our reading? In verse 44, where you'd expect it to say Jesus told them or Jesus said, it says actually Jesus cried out. And the Greek word there has two meanings. Some translations say cried out as the New International Version that we read from Des. Others say loudly declared. Another one says shouted. And some translations just say Jesus cried. All of them are trying to convey his intensity and emotion. Jesus is raising his voice, but he's also full of sorrow. He's weeping. Jesus did not come to judge, but to save. That was the first judgment, and it has been carried out. It's in the past tense. But in the future, at the last day, Christians have always believed that Jesus will return. We sometimes call it the second coming. We believe it because he said it would be so. He will return to judge a second time, to put the whole world right. Not just those who are living at that time, but also those who have died, everyone in history. And we find both of those judgments, the first judgment and the coming judgment, represented in the Apostles' Creed. Three weeks ago, we saw that Jesus suffered and died under Pontius Pilate, who was his judge. Jesus was condemned by Pilate. That was the first judgment. In verse 38, here in our reading, John quotes Isaiah 53. Lord, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And that's just the first verse of Isaiah chapter 53. Do you know that chapter in the book of Isaiah? If there's one chapter, a single chapter in the whole Old Testament that points us most clearly to Jesus and to the hope that we have in him. It's Isaiah 53. So if you don't know it, go home and read it. Learn it. Isaiah goes on to say that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. That's why even after Jesus performed all these miraculous signs, they still wouldn't believe in him. 
It goes on in Isaiah 53 to say, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Those are words that seem terrible, but they are packed full of hope. Jesus has taken the judgment that was necessary and yet was impossible for us to bear. In our courts of law, the judge sits on what they call a bench. It's an elevated chair that commands a view of the entire courtroom. And it's designed so that the judge can look down on everyone else. It's symbolic of the judge's authority. But Jesus is the one judge who did the unthinkable, who took the place of the condemned, who left the bench, who gave up all of his power and privilege, leaving his rightful place in heaven and coming close to identify with us, to love us, even to lay down his life for us. And if you put your trust in Jesus, your judgment has been rendered. It is in the past. That is the only way any one of us will be able to stand the final judgment. And so we start to see that God's judgment leads into a new freedom. In spite of all the criticism in our world of Christians being the judgmental ones, in spite of all the importance in our culture we supposedly place on being non-judgmental, let's face it, we find ourselves criticized and judged at every turn in this secular world. You're judged on what you wear, you're judged on how you look, what you say, the car you drive, the appearance of your family, the list of your achievements, and the list goes on and on. But in Christ, we are loved. He has taken the judgment for us. And so we don't have to be devastated when we're judged by others or even rejected by them. And most importantly, we can be honest with ourselves and with God. That's what he wants from us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the wonderful German theologian, wrote a short book on Christian community as he was resisting the Nazis during World War II. It's a book called Life Together. In it, he says this, it is the grace of the gospel that it confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great and desperate sinner. Now come, as the sinner you are, to God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He does not want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone, so be glad. This message is liberation through truth. You can't hide anything from God. The mask you wear around others will do you no good with him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. During this series, we have talked about habits we can nurture and practices we can adopt so that the truth about God that we find in the Apostles' Creed and in the Bible will become not just sound doctrine in our heads, as important as that is, but also our lived experience of God's grace to us. And this week, I want to commend to you the practice of confession. Bonhoeffer calls it the missing piece in our churches. Every Sunday morning, we've done that already today, we pray a prayer of confession. 
And I hope that all of us confess our sins privately to God in our personal prayers as well. But I'm talking about something different. I'm talking about openly confessing your sins to another person, to a Christian friend in your life. A key part of why the church even exists is to allow relations like that to grow between us. And so my prayer is that we will grow into this more and more as a community at Courtright. It's hard. It's risky. But I pray that we can become more honest about our weaknesses and confess our sins as we find the healing that comes from knowing we're loved and supported by others in the body of Christ. Now, some of you might be skeptical about that. Maybe you've been hurt by other Christians, disappointed by your experience of church. But consider the alternative. Bonhoeffer says, sin demands to have a man by himself. And of course, he's referring to women as well here. Sin withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. And this is why confession is so important. Through it, God breaks the power of sin and enables us to be like Christ to one another. The part of the creed we've looked at this morning highlights that. Bonhoeffer goes on to say, Since the sin must come to light eventually... It is better that it happens today between me and my brother rather than on the last day in the piercing light of the final judgment. It is a mercy that we can confess our sins to a brother or sister. Such grace spares us the terrors of the last judgment. So here's my question for you today. Would you be willing to pray earnestly, sincerely, and ask God to lead you into a relationship where you could find a friend you could trust and to whom you could confess your sins. If you were to pray a prayer like that, I believe God would answer it. And I believe that would make such a difference in your life and in the life of our church As God brings these things to light, he pours his hope into us individually and as a church. There is a judge, and it's not you. It's God. It's a judge we can trust. And so in the end, Christians should be the least judgmental of all people, the most humble of all people, the least prepared to look at other Christians and say, ah, that's not a true Christian, and the most motivated to fight for justice on behalf of the oppressed. We are in Christ, and in Christ we have this freedom. We know that our judgment is behind us and that we are ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. But we also know that we are guilty and that we deserve to be judged. So we cannot feel superior to anyone we know there will be a future judgment as well. And so we have a profound hope that can inspire us to fight evil and injustice without becoming self-righteous, to do it quietly, 
to do it humbly, as Christians have done for centuries. It's in the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ and in the hope of his resurrection that we can say fearlessly, come Lord Jesus. And we wait. The church waits. Let's pray. Dear God, you say in so many places in the Bible that our lives are like a mist, and we know it. Our years fly by. And so we come to you in the light of your eternity and your truth, knowing that there is a day for each one of us when we must give an account, and knowing that you are the most merciful a judge could ever be. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, have mercy. Lord Jesus, come close. Lord Jesus, be at the very center of our lives. And as we prayed earlier, Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. Amen.